Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. We have been getting a lot of questions about what the post-row landscape in America looks like. Now, we've had conversations on this show about what the legal status would be if Roe was overturned. We've had a lot of people discuss what the best way forward for the educational or the political arms might be. But one of the things we haven't yet discussed is what the changing... Uh, the changing geography on the ground looks like. Where is abortion illegal? Where is it legal? Can people still get an abortion in places where states are illegal? What is the status of all of the trigger laws? And very importantly, can the Democrats roll this back and codify Roe? And if they did that, would the pro-life movement have any recourse to fight this new threat? And so to discuss all of these issues, I talked to Timothy Head, the Executive Director of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. He has a phenomenal grasp on what's going on across the United States. And of course, his organization actually works in the pro-life movement on all of these issues. I talked to him about what just happened in Georgia, where just last week at time of airing, we see the Heartbeat Act take effect after pro-life prosecutors won in court. He laid out where abortion will be illegal, what the impact of that will be on the abortion rate, and what the pro-life movement's task in this very divided environment is. And so, for all of your, to answer all of your questions and to hopefully enlighten you as to what's going on and what we can expect to happen over the next few months, here is my conversation with Timothy Head of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. So just to get this kicked off before we start discussing what a post-row America is like, maybe just give our, our listeners a brief introduction of who you are and how you got involved in the movement. I'm actually originally from Texas, was uh, was born and raised there, but I was actually adopted shortly after birth, just a few days afterwards. And I was born in 1976. From early in my life, my, my parents, you know, my adopted parents told me that I was you know, that I was adopted kind of as, as early as I could understand that concept, you know, you know, telling, telling me I, I didn't grow in, you know, my mommy's tummy. I, you know, I grew in another mommy's tummy and stuff like that. So I, I kind of had an appreciation that, uh, you know, that I was adopted and, you know, another, another woman out there, you know, I had kind of another mom, if you will, I actually have not met, met my, my biological mother, but so that, you know, I kind of grew up with that awareness as a, as a kid, five-year-old, six-year-old, 10-year-old, 15-year-old. And, and of course, you know, the, the older I got, I came to also understand that there were laws about this and that technically that would have been allowed, you know, I, I, that wasn't an automatic decision that, uh, that she could have chosen not to have me. And so, you know, also pretty early, probably nine or 10 years old. I, I also kind of had this internal appreciation, I guess you could say that, you know, even though my, my, I didn't know my bi biological mother, I knew that she cared enough about me to, to give me a chance. And, you know, so I, I'd say on a personal level, I've always kind of carried that certainly appreciation personally, but also somewhat burden, you know, obviously for other people that didn't get that chance. I'm a practicing Christian. I'm an evangelical. And so, you know, certainly would also investigate scripture and then other kind of Christian teachings on, on life and the value of life, as well as, you know, how we, how, how God so values each of us individually. And, and obviously all of us as, as in communities. And so it's kind of been layers that have added to, you know, to that over, over my personal life. And then, you know, I joined Faith and Freedom Coalition almost eight years ago as the executive director, which, you know, clearly is on the, on the political side and public policy side is, is unabashedly pro-life. And so we've, you know, that's been kind of central to our mission as a, as an organization since our inception. 
faith and freedom, what kind of what's what's your mandate? What sort of work do you do more broadly? The simple way that we sometimes like to say it is is our our role or our job is to give Christians a voice in government. So, you know, obviously in in America, there's been kind of an ebb and a flow. And I would say that we're starting to see more of a flow on Christians and people of faith being engaged in, in government and in politics, you know, for for a pretty long time. There are different, like, express, explicit teachings on, on should Christians be in, engaged in government or in, you know, public policy, running for office. Some some believe that it's it's not appropriate. It's like, you know, it's not biblically taught. I actually would argue that that's, that's not accurate. That's not the case. So I would say over the last probably 40 to 50 years, there's been kind of a more concerted effort to, to organize and, and engage people of faith, especially Christians. And, and so our, our founder, Faith and Freedom Coalition's founder is a guy named Ralph Reed, who's been kind of on the on the cusp of that discussion, probably since the mid eighties, you know, in different forms and fashions. So in 2009, he started Faith and Freedom Coalition and we, you know, we certainly work on on the life question on on federal and now on state levels and in, in, uh, state policy. But we work on marriage and family issues, religious liberty, the nation of Israel, you know, on, on the federal side. And then we also work on the justice system, on human trafficking, on the education system, on an immigration system. So we kind of, you know, have uh, have eight or ten different subject matters that we touch on. But uh, I think I would always say that the question of life is is kind of first and foremost on our minds. So tell us what just happened in the state of Georgia, which is very good news that our listeners will be, you know, very gruntled to hear about. So really a couple of years ago in the state of Georgia, which happens to be Faith and Freedom Coalition's home state, matter of fact, it's where I, I personally live. In 2018, late, late 18 is when the statute passed and, and started to kind of kick in, but it was a uh, originally was kind of enjoined by by a court, this so-called heartbeat bill. And there's a couple of different ways that you can write a heartbeat bill, but uh, but the, the the Georgia law was written to be fairly aggressive, basically. And and so it's it's connected to restricting abortions at the at the first detection of of a heartbeat, which uh, so it's not necessarily tied to like a specific date or or number of weeks. It's it's around an event. But that generally for for humans is is a roughly six weeks. So just uh, again, had been enjoined with the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs. What it basically did legally is by making in, instead of that six week limitation being unconstitutional, it you know the Dobbs decision made it back in the the legal purview of a state. And so basically, immediately that injunction was revisited by the circuit courts. So the federal circuit courts, right, you know, the layer right below the Supreme Court, the Eleventh Circuit that has jurisdiction over the state of Georgia, kind of automatically revisited that injunction that that had paused the the enforcement of this six week heartbeat bill. When a district court had struck the bill as unconstitutional, and then in the, the 11th Circuit had, had, had kind of paused it. Well, the, the 11th Circuit then went back and, and reversed the district court striking of the bill. So now it's actually immediately in effect. So, that, so as of Wednesday, as of two days ago, the, the six-week bill is, is fully in effect and fully enforceable in the state of Georgia, which is, is exciting news. That's, uh, that makes the state of Georgia probably the fifth state in the country and in, in the United States that has basically this six-week heartbeat bill. 
That would be would be July 20. What do you anticipate the impact of the heartbeat bill being implemented being in Georgia on the ground? As I think most of your listeners would know, you know, just just in practice, you know, most women don't know that they're pregnant until you know, a little bit normally more like 10, 11, 12 weeks, right? And so when a heartbeat is detected, usually, you know, the the mother doesn't doesn't even, isn't even aware of that. So most uh, most folks that are seeking an abortion are well past the six week mark, which is part of the reason in practice. Let's be honest, that's that's part of the reason why it's it's a, a fairly important kind of demarcation. So you know, right now in in the United States, there are eight states that basically have a complete prohibition and and then against abortions with you know a few minor exceptions. And this this again makes Georgia the fifth. So that that basically makes thirteen states in the United States now that that either completely abolish or in practice almost completely prohibits abortions. And so we, uh, we think that that's, we're very optimistic about the impact of that for, for Georgians and, and, and certainly women and babies in, the, in these other 12 states, 13 now total. What is the lay of the land post row across the U.S. now? So when our listeners hear that, you know, there's there's 13 states, you know, with trigger bans, what does that look like in real life? Because you have some pro-lifers saying, look, these laws are so loose that abortion is, is still functionally available. At the same time, these these new pro-life regimes are so strict that what you see is a lot of abortionists closing up, moving to more friendly states. You see abortion clinics closing their doors. So, you know, Dobbs came down on June 24. This show will be airing almost exactly one month after Roe v. Wade was overturned. Can you give us kind of a lay, a state-by-state lay of the land for, for what, 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 what kind of situation we're facing right now, four weeks on? The analysis gets a little bit a little bit gray or blurry in some of these things, right? Because, like you like you said, there are 13 states that have some form of trigger that have, have has kicked in that basically kind of reinstates some kind of statute that was passed before before the the Dobbs decision came down. So so there's 13 that are kind of in that category, and then I would say there are another probably 15 to 17 states that would get us to a total of like 28 to probably 30 states. But these other 15 to 17, their kind of political or or, uh, cultural populations are favorable to these kinds of laws. Okay. So, so they're there are other other states that have instead of instead of this six week ban, for instance, that we just talked about. There are fifteen week bans. There's probably three states, and then another for twenty twenty week bans. There's probably another ten states. So functionally, there's about thirteen states that are that have either fifteen or twenty week bans that are already triggered in, and then another probably four states that they don't have laws on the books because you know, of the Roe and Casey regime for the last 50 years, but they're politically favorable for these kinds of things. A place like Alaska, for instance, doesn't have laws on the books, but uh, but their pro-life vote, if you will, makes up a majority. So I would suspect by probably next spring, but basically by March or April of next year, the state legislatures either will have trigger laws that have kicked in or state legislatures that have majorities that could carry something like this we should be at about 30 states, 28 to 30 states. But that still leaves, obviously, another states with uh, another 20 states with question marks. And we expect, uh, you know, unfortunately, we're probably going to see 10 or 12 states. You know, the pendulum is going to swing kind of the opposite direction. You know, the huge, huge examples, obviously, are California, New York, and probably Illinois around Chicago. Those three and then, you know, a handful of others, probably another eight, eight or nine other states, 
will will become very liberal, you know, both politically and kind of numerically in in the practices that they allow. And so, you know, one of the roles, frankly, in Faith and Freedom Coalition is that we're going to, to, to be very vocal towards the citizens in those states because honestly, a lot of people that consider themselves, quote unquote, pro-choice in America actually are not in favor of third, you know, of late term or, or third trimester abortions or practices. And so I actually think that, that those 10 or 12 states that, that I'm referring to right now, they're actually going to overplay their hand. And a lot of, of kind of more moderate Democrats really are not going to be, they're going to be very uncomfortable with this. I mean, you know, the, with the advent and kind of popularization of, of ultrasounds and especially 3D ultrasounds, it's really, really hard to argue, you know, that, that a baby that's well in advance, month seven, month eight, certainly month nine, everybody basically knows what's going on there. The mother knows intuitively, the mother knows because she can feel it and any dad you know, any man that's that that obviously isn't experiencing it personally, they can just see a picture of a baby sucking sucking their thumb, and and really feel you know very uncomfortable with these practices. So the way the kind of glass, if you will, is going to shatter, I think you're going to have 30 states that are going to move much more towards life, and probably 10 states that are going to move much more towards choice. But there are going to be fights to be fought in those in those polarized choice states. So let's take a look at, at the practical effect now, because obviously in some ways the post-row world is going to look like the pre-row world in which you have people that are going to be heading to places like New York to get abortions that they can't get in places like Georgia or Mississippi. And pre-row, you had people like Dr. Bernard Nathanson, who had you know previously been an abortion doctor before he became a pro-life advocate, running massive clinics with multiple operating rooms going full steam all day. I think he personally performed just over 50,000 abortions. So from a practical perspective, how do you see this all, all, all shaking out in terms of, is the abortion rate going to go down we know it's going to go down quite significantly because we already have good data on what happens when women have to travel for abortions. We have good data on what happens when they have to pay for it themselves. And we simply know that the more inconveniences are placed in between a woman and getting an abortion, the more likely it is she is to pursue life-affirming options. But we obviously can't see the right to travel being prohibited. So women will be able to get abortions in different states. What do you think the lay of the land is going to look like going forward? I agree with your your assessment or analysis that, that we do feel very confident it's going to drop significantly. Some assessments, even, even though it'll be available again in those, you know, probably at least at least 10 or 12 states, there still are expectations that it could drop by, by you know, potentially 60%. These kind of destinations or, or mega clinics that you, that you are starting to hear talked about, and frankly, even are starting to be the projects, they're not physically building them quite yet, but they're, they're definitely on the books being planned and seeing, you know, uh, construction permits being being sought in New York and California, and again in, in the Chicago area. So that, you know the, you are definitely going to see these kind of destination places, literally with like hotels built across the street from you know from them, and et cetera. Which honestly is 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 heartbreaking. But another element that oh, there's two kind of parallel phenomena that I think are, are we're going to see start to develop. One one we've already seen as of about a week and a half ago. The last time I, I kind of did an analysis where we have 93 district attorneys across the country that just summarily announced we will not enforce, uh, you know, abortion-related uh, statutes, uh, criminal statutes in our jurisdiction. And so, as you would imagine, 
most of, basically all of these uh, DAs are in urban centers. Urban centers, obviously, you know, politically tend to tend to trend more registered Democrats. And so, a, a DA, for instance, the state of Texas may have, you know, one of these six week. They have the same prohibition on on the heartbeat bill that that Georgia has. But the DA of Travis County, for instance, which is where Austin, Texas is, said that she will not enforce this, you know, these in Austin. And so the the, the Texas legislature is contemplating, can a, a lawyer who is elected as a prosecutor preemptively announce that, that there is like a whole strata of laws that she just will not follow? So A, could she or should she be disbarred as an attorney? And then B, you know, certainly politically, can she be either sanctioned by, you know, by like the Texas Attorney General or can the Texas Attorney General's office, can a state attorney general's office kind of be be given statutorily jurisdiction also to prosecute these cases. So if a, a, a district attorney from one county fails or, or, or refuses to, to prosecute uh, or investigate for that matter, can a, a state investigative body or the state attorney general, can they, can they prosecute? So that's, that's one kind of the prosecutorial side in practice. You know, if a DA just says anybody can open up a, a sanctuary kind of abortion mill in my in my state that are in my county, but they basically just you know kind of shelve uh, the state statute, and so that's uh, that's an interesting fight that's happening that already is being kind of contemplated by those by those pro life state governments. The second lane that I think is very interesting that we're about to start seeing is companies that are again they're like developing internal public internal hiring policies or HR policies and then announcing these policies that we will you know we will pay for you know female employees who are pregnant to travel if you're you know if you're an employee in Tennessee and you want to go have an abortion in Illinois our company will pay your travel up to a certain amount we'll pay your medical bills up to a certain amount etc and so you know, from a PR standpoint, we're, we at Faith and Freedom Coalition are starting to challenge that to say, well, are you at least willing to offer the same, you know, benefits to women who choose to have babies? You know, if you're a, a financial company, a bank, a bank or, a, you know, an insurance company, you know, are you so kind of adversarial to this that you don't want women to have, you know, children that are your employees. The last thing I'll say to that effect is, is uh, similarly, state legislatures are investigating if there are any, you know, tax breaks or economic incentives, you know, offered to these various companies to to locate, you know, in Nashville or Austin or South Carolina, Florida, et cetera. Should those tax benefits be limited, if not revoked, if they are, if if a company moves and receives a, a tax benefit, basically a financial incentive to move. And then defies the state legislature, the state, you know, state statutes, should those financial benefits be, again, either limited or potentially withheld. Do you anticipate the abortion rate going down very significantly? And I know this is me asking to look into a crystal ball you don't have, right? Because the data, we, we have the data on which things reduce the abortion rate. And then we have data, we have less clear data on, on how many out-of-state abortions happen. One of the difficulties I suspect will be actually obtaining decent data that tells us why women are having abortions and where we're getting, aside from rough numbers from independent free Senate clinics that aren't legally obligated to report their numbers. But what would your, what would your estimate be if you had to make an educated guess? Probably three different states that I've seen. The estimates 
are that abortions in the state of Texas are estimated to drop 80 to 90 percent. The abortions in, in a couple of other states are, are estimated to drop by 60 to 70 percent. At least those, you know, the, the three that I've kind of seen that I, could, I would consider to be good faith efforts to try to kind of project and model the, the impact of this, it appears to be, you know, somewhere in like the 60 to maybe 85 percent range. And, uh, and that's that is contemplating the the the, the travel perspective travel of of people. So the reason why you know we've we've asked some state uh, lawmakers to pursue those kinds of studies is also to to be able to anticipate new births that are going to be you know occurring in the state. So the great news is that we're going to be seeing more more you know innocent lives protected, but also more more lives you know just coming into into these respective states, which we believe is a great thing, but we also can't just, one of the complaints or critiques that choice advocates say is, you know, that, that pro-life people care about the life in the womb, but they don't care about the, the life once once they're born. And that we, we think that it's really, really important. We're not trying to create huge governmental structures around these things, but it is important because one of the major impetuses for people to have abortions is socioeconomic. It's not the only one, but but money is definitely a a major driving factor, right? And so we need to contemplate that if low, low income, low low socioeconomic level women are are having babies in these various states, we need to be able to to have wraparound services available to to both support those women and certainly to support those those new babies. And so this is the reason why the, those projections are they're not like ideological projections. We're trying to determine. If we're going to, to kind of create these new alternative to abortion programs, educational programs, medical programs, you know, housing opportunity, you know, temporary housing opportunities for, for neonatal situations, you know, states need to be able to, to kind of ballpark what that financial implications for that will be. And that's that's where those those models that I alluded to have kind of kicked in. A lot of people want to know, okay, we have we have Dobbs, Rose gone, Dovey Bolton is gone, but is there any way the abortion activists can turn back the clock? Is there any good chance that Roe could be enshrined in statute? If Roe was enshrined in statute, would the Supreme Court throw that law because they returned the issue to the states? And that would, again, be the federal branch overriding the states as opposed to the court overriding the states as took place in, in Roe. So is there any way that we could end up going back to a sort of Roe structure and undo all the things we've seen happen in the last four weeks? There is the potential for the for the federal government for Congress to enact a, a federal statute. Now, the because of the current makeup, certainly of, of especially the United States Senate. So obviously, the Democrats have a majority in the in the U.S. House, pretty narrow majority. As a matter of fact, it's a very narrow majority. It's obviously split in the U.S. Senate, 50-50. And so, in order to pass something like that on the federal side, what would basically have to happen, and I'm sure listeners are are savvy to this, but in order for a bill to come up, to be heard in the U.S. Senate, there's what's referred to as a filibuster rule or a a cloture rule. So 60 out of 100 U.S. senators have to vote for the bill to come to the floor before the simple majority actually passes passes the bill. It would not pass the, the cloture vote rule in the U.S. Senate, but there is the possibility for, for basically the entire Senate to vote to eliminate basically this cloture or filibuster rule. Well, the, the implications for that, not just around an abortion-related law, but for every single law, would really, really be a profound change of the 
really the whole sort of DNA of the United States Senate. And so while it would be a, a close vote on, on, on its face, the cloture vote would not be a, cl- a close vote. So the Senate really is kind of like the, the kind of the dam in the, in, the, in the river here. And I don't expect for the Democrats to completely eliminate the filibuster over this because the implications, they know they're about to lose the U.S. Senate. They know they're about to lose the U.S. House politically. And they know that their hold on the White House is tenuous at best for 2024. And they also have experienced themselves. Matter of fact, Chuck Schumer, the leader of the Senate, has experienced himself. If they were to eliminate the filibuster, that guillotine can swing both ways, you know, politically speaking, and uh, and it could be really, really dangerous for them politically in the future. One more hypothetical for you that I'm curious about, and I know some of our listeners are, is let's say they successfully codified Roe. What would the political pro-life movement's next move be? Once Roe was codified, uh, would there be any more opportunity to decodify it, for lack of a better word? Absolutely. Ultimately, what, what I, I think would happen in that scenario, which again, I don't expect to happen, but absolutely what could happen is whenever in this scenario, Republicans have the White House, the Senate, and the House, they would just eliminate the filibuster and pass a law saying it is not legal in all 50 states. And then if Democrats ever get into a situation where they have, you know, the White House, the Senate and the House, they would just pass a bill saying it's illegal, it's legal in all 50 states. And we literally would just see this pendulum swing illegal, not, you know, legal and illegal, legal and illegal every, you know, eight to potentially four years. Anytime there's a tricameral control is in place. It would just change. I actually know enough Democrats on the Hill that they're they're actually aware of that. And they know that, in a sense, they would rather have from their perspective, they would rather have, you know, institutions in California, Illinois and New York with, you know, unabated or uninterrupted versus swinging all the time. Last question then, maybe you could just tell our listeners where they can follow your work because, you know, like a lot of people knew what Roe v. Wade meant and a lot of people knew Roe v. Wade needed to be overturned for the pro-life movement to succeed. But, you know, this this sort of delineation of what's going on right now is very helpful. So where can people follow your work and get these updates? Our organization, again, is the Faith and Freedom Coalition and our website is just ffcoalition.com. That's ffcoalition.com. And, uh, you know, certainly we have have social media on Facebook and Twitter as well. We'll be kind of, uh, we're working in those several states that we talked about at the beginning to make sure that there's follow through in those roughly 30 states to make sure that good things are put in place, uh, but then also to fight against the really outlandish, you know, proposals in, in some of those pro-choice states. So it is, it's, 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 it's kind of a moving target. It's, it's different in every state and it changes from month to month. And so it's, it, it takes a fairly, a fairly high level of engagement to, to kind of keep up with what's going on. And, and we'd love to have them join us on, on our website and on social media as, as we continue to fight for innocent and valuable life. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Absolutely. God bless. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Timothy Head of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. Thanks so much for joining us this week. If you want to check out past shows or subscribe to ensure that you get the shows delivered to you when they come out, head over to LifeSightNews.com, click on the podcast tab. You can find our podcast there. Again, thanks for giving us your time this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.